The reading today is from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 to 21. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you. Because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that they may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long that you would speak to us now. Speak to us from your word. Speak to us of your grace, your love for us. Speak to us your truth, your promises. And do it, we pray, so that we may know the power of the gospel that saves us from sin, that brings us into your family, the joy of your spirit leading us every day until we come home to be with you. Lord Jesus, grant that we might meet you in your word today. Amen. I do please be seated and uh, just add my welcome to that of Fiona's, uh, especially uh, to the Gandhi family. I'm uh, looking forward to those two Thanksgivings a little later on. I should just say, um, the church warden very kindly brought me a cup of water. There's nothing caffeinated in here, so don't think I'm getting ahead of you. Uh, but do stay after the service for a cup of coffee, uh, if that's what you like. Uh, there's tea as well, or even water. Uh, why would you do that? And uh, you can come and join us down at the church centre afterwards, uh, where we'll have some refreshments uh, together. So uh, do take advantage of that if you would like to. 
And uh, if you are here for the first time, uh, then a very warm welcome uh, to you indeed. Uh, In our church, we uh, listen to God's word every Sunday, and we normally do that by working our way through uh, a different book of the Bible. Uh, You've uh, joined us this morning, if you are here for the first time or here for the first time online, uh, as we're nearly at the end of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Um, So if one or two bits, you think, gosh, where on earth did that come from? It may just be that that's because you're joining us at that point. Uh, But uh, hopefully uh, everything will be clear in what I say today. That's what I've been praying for, and you could pray for that as well. Now, we last week uh, heard the one direct quotation from the Lord Jesus in this letter of Paul. Uh, It's there in chapter 12. Uh, Do have it open uh, if you want to, uh, or on your screen. uh, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, And as we saw last week, uh, this really is the high point of the whole letter. Uh, Indeed, that sentence could underline everything about Paul since his conversion on the Damascus Road, blinded straight away uh, and reinforcing his weakness, and then commissioned in the grace and power of Jesus. As he traveled around, he told everybody who would stay still long enough to listen uh, about Jesus and how they could find him, uh, in him a friend and a savior, uh, and know him as the living Lord. Uh, Churches were planted as people came to believe, uh, and he would circulate around during his ministry, uh, planting and then pastoring the churches uh, that uh, he'd started And as he went on on these journeys, and we've seen lots of that in this letter particularly, we've had an insight into just how much it cost him. He's told us honestly about the suffering uh, that he went through, as well as the joyful triumphs of seeing people come to Christ and churches growing and thriving. But all of it is of grace. All of it is done in the power of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus And as he goes on and as he suffers more, uh, well, the weaker he is, the more evident it is that everything he has done that is of lasting value is evidence that it is Christ's power at work, not his. The more foolish he is, the greater Christ's wisdom is shown. The grace of Jesus is enough for his forgiveness, for his ministry, for his daily life for his eternal future. And the glorious good news of the Christian gospel is that exactly the same is true for us. We can say with Paul, we can hear that same promise of Jesus saying to us, and we believe it, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's demonstrated in Paul's life and ministry. It's true for us as well. The grace of Jesus is enough for my forgiveness and yours, for my ministry and yours, for our daily lives, for our eternal future together. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And as Paul continues uh, in uh, his letter, uh, that great promise of Jesus underlines everything he will say today, everything he has said in this letter And so this week and next, as we continue uh, and conclude uh, Paul's uh, second letter to Corinth, uh, he continues in this unwilling boasting uh, that he's been forced uh, to do. Uh, There are uh, these false apostles, uh, the triumphalists, uh, who have come into the congregation at Corinth, uh, and they have begun to speak a different message 
It uses a lot of the same words, Jesus and glory and God and the Spirit. Uh, It has impressive visions, and yet really it has no substance. It has lots of smooth and impressive religious talk about Jesus, but the grace of Jesus that Paul depends on and that we depend on, if we're really going to know God, has been replaced by a series of demands, do this and then you will live. Not receive this, which is the gospel, and then you will live. And according to these uh, men who have come in, uh, the gospel now is a matter of what we do for God. And the Corinthians are in danger of being completely taken in by these false teachers. Uh, And if we ask why uh, that was uh, such a danger for them, well, it's because of the credentials they brought and the culture in which they lived. See, their credentials were, they came along and said, well, that Paul, yes, he's a Jew like us, but actually we've come directly from Jerusalem. And do you know what? We're proper authorities on this subject of religion. And yes, believe in Jesus, that's great. But now you must add all this from the antiquity of our faith. You must obey these laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments and so on. And once you've added your own obedience, well then, maybe you've got a shot at being saved. Because they came with uh, religious pedigree uh, and these impeccable credentials, because they proclaimed this message eloquently, uh, they said, well, that's worth something. Uh, And so actually, if you're going to hear this message uh, of life from us, you need to pay us for what you're hearing. And that was where their credentials overlapped into the culture of the day. Uh, In those days, accomplished orators Uh, from pagan backgrounds, would travel around and they would charge you to come and listen to their wisdom. There was no Netflix. There was no internet. There was no other means uh, of communication or entertainment. And these orators were what you went to listen to. And because they were so impressive, it was unthinkable that they would not charge for their services. The idea that you would instruct or entertain people for free was deeply suspicious. You know how sometimes you see a link on an email or something drops through the door and you think, that's too good to be true. And that's probably because it is too good to be true and you're about to be had. Well, it was that feeling people had, you see, when Paul preached his gospel for free and said, it's not about anything you can do. You just need to come and put your trust in Jesus because his grace will meet you at your point of need and sin and failure. And his strength will meet you when you recognize there's nothing you can do about that. But just put your trust in him. And when he preached that message, well, it seemed so contrary to everything that had come before, so out of step with the culture, that sadly this Corinthian congregation was ready to hear something quite different that would take them away from that grace of the gospel and instead take them back to bondage. We know what Paul thinks of these men. He's told us, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. You're so gullible, he says to them. 
And there's no doubt as to the nature of these preachers. Chapter 11, verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And of course, 2,000 2000 years later, nothing has changed. There are still preachers with impeccable credentials who will talk about Jesus and the Spirit and the gospel and light, just like these ancient false apostles did, and who are especially persuasive because their message and their method is consistent with the culture in which we live, the air we breathe every time we tune into something on the television or follow somebody on Twitter or look at what's trending on the Internet. And because they themselves may be such genuine and lovely people. So let me give you a contemporary example, a man called Richard Raw. Uh, He's a popular author uh, among Christians, even among a clergy, Uh, and yet he himself acknowledges that his theology of a universal Christ is closer to Buddhism than it is to Orthodox Christianity. He speaks of a Jesus who is not unique, where there is no judgment, no need for a cross, no resurrection, no second coming. It's just not Christianity, and the clergy are flooding to read this book and to devour it, not in order to critique it, but because even the clergy are being led astray from the orthodox apostolic gospel. So why is he so popular? Well, he's popular because his credentials are impeccable. He uses all the right language. There's Jesus and the Bible and the Spirit and so on. And his approach is very contemporary in terms of our culture. He starts with people's stories. And he locates the authority of his message in the stories that other people tell him In other words, he starts with us, not with God's word. And that's our culture to a T, isn't it? Authentic spirituality is unique to me and my story. And so he tunes into the way I feel and then endorses that with the authority of God's word. The language throughout is that of inclusion, affirmation and blessing. It's Just like the ancient false apostles Paul confronted, it's the theology of power. Not Christ's power, but my power. Not Christ's grace, but my story. And yet it's so compelling because it's so like the other compelling voices around us in our culture. No, the authentic, unique, sovereign Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And in the end, though that humbles us, it's the only thing that can save us, for he is the only one who can save us. We cannot save ourselves. Though it takes us uh, through the cross, it leads us to the resurrection. And unlike my story or any of our stories, it has the good news that it can actually save us and not just leave us looking for our own answers. So how do we recognize the authentic Jesus, and his true servants? Or by way of application, how do we know that we've trusted in the real Jesus and what does it look like to know him today? Those are the questions we ought to be asking as we come to the passage that's in front of us. And there are three things here all around authenticity. First, the authenticity, uh, the authenticating marks of a true apostle of Christ. 
And then second and third, the necessity of love and truth as the authenticating marks of real Christian faith. So first, the authenticating marks of a true apostle. Uh, My hope uh, is that uh, when we finish 2 Corinthians, we will return for a a few weeks uh, to a series we were just starting as the wretched pandemic began over two years ago. Uh, We'd just begun to look at some themes through the book of Proverbs, uh, where I've collected together uh, Proverbs under similar themes, and then we explore those uh, theme by theme together. So let me give you a taster of that uh, here in Proverbs 26, uh, verse 4 and 5. Listen carefully to what the wise man advises. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. In other words, there are times in life And Paul is in one of those, just as we often find ourselves, where whatever you say, you're going to get it wrong. When you're talking to a fool, if you don't answer him, well, then you'll be like him. If you do answer him, then you've made him think he's wise in his own eyes. In other words, whatever you do, you're going to get it wrong. So you just have to make the best choice you can and put your foot forward. So proverbs are not law. If they were, they would be mutually contradictory. Do not answer a fool. Answer a fool. Which is it? Life is complicated. It's hard to know. And so Paul's dilemma is this. No matter what he does, as he confronts these false apostles, some people will think he's got it wrong. And he just has to do the best he can. And the choice he makes is to write these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. According to the first proverb, he shouldn't have written them because he'll just be uh, come like them in their foolishness. But if he doesn't answer them, his beloved Corinthian congregation will be led astray. And so love wins out at great cost because of his concern that people really know the grace and power of Jesus and that nothing cuts across that. He decides this is a moment to opt for that second proverb. He cannot leave the so-called super-apostles to be wise in their own eyes because that will lead them to destroying the faith of the Corinthians. So he makes a fool of himself by answering them and by making it clear that it is the Corinthians' failure to exercise discernment that has driven him to it. Friends, I cannot stress how important it is to listen to a message like this one or any message about life and eternity and God and meaning, to listen to a message with discernment. Let me put it bluntly. Don't assume that the kindly bishop on Thought for the Day is a faithful teacher of God's word. But also don't assume that he isn't a faithful teacher of God's word. We have to steer a pathway between credulity, where we just believe anything, and cynicism, where we believe nothing, and instead develop a discerning Indeed, never mind, as I say, the bishop on thought for the day. Listen to me with discernment. Listen to anyone who stands in this pulpit with discernment. Is what you hear consistent and flowing from, consistent with and flowing from the apostolic biblical gospel? Or is it empty, frothy bluster that gains its power just because it uses religious language to say the sort of things that people nowadays in our culture in the early 21st century love to hear. That's what Paul is doing in these chapters. He's urging the Corinthians and us, their 2,000 year later successors, to have a discerning ear. 
Not everything we listen to is true. And we have to listen with discernment without becoming cynical or judgmental. I wish it was not this way. Paul wishes he did not have to write these last four chapters of his letter. But he does, and we must therefore speak from them. And so he says, verse 11, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. Uh, When Paul says super apostles, he doesn't really mean he thinks they're super apostles. He means that's what they think of themselves. They really think they are something. There's an irony here, of course, though, isn't there? Because Paul says, I am nothing. He's perfectly happy to say that. Don't listen to me, he says, in myself. I've got nothing. I'm just a sinner. Uh, And everyone who stands here would say the same thing. The irony is, Paul says, I am nothing, and I'm not inferior to them, which implies his assessment of them, where they think they're super apostles, he thinks they're nothing as well. And that's not rude, because he's only passing the same judgment on them as he passes upon himself. So what is a true apostle? Who are the men who really can be trusted to bring us to a knowledge that saves of the authentic Jesus Christ? Well, two things mark an apostle, according to Paul, uh, in these opening verses. Uh, first, uh, the signs that mark an, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you. Jesus did great miracles. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He walked on water. Uh, he fed hungry people and so on uh, miraculously. His apostles do the same sort of miracles. And they do them uh, because as they are commissioned by Christ to bring his word to the world out of Israel and to the ends of the earth, so that unique foundation uh, apostles or spokesmen for Jesus are enabled by him to perform miracles that will authenticate their words as the authentic spokesman that he has sent out into the world. They are a foundational layer. There are no apostles today. Another qualification for being an apostle, according to the first chapter of the book of Acts, is that you must have seen the risen Lord Jesus. Well, for nearly 2,000 years, nobody could have qualified for that because all these early witnesses, of course, have long died. So an apostle is a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, They're given uh, the ability by God uh, to perform these signs and wonders and miracles so that the message about Jesus will be seen as authentic. Paul isn't saying that God can't do miracles today. Uh, He isn't saying that he'll... But what he is saying here is that there is a particular clustering of those miracles around the, uh, the apostles to show that they really were the ones that Jesus had given his word to. Those miracles show that we can trust what they say as being, as it were, from the lips of Jesus himself. Well, that's one sign. And the uh, false apostles have come in. Uh, perhaps they claim to be able to do miracles as well. That would certainly be consistent uh, with their desire to be impressive and do wonderful things. But Paul says, and we may almost miss it, he says these signs, wonders, and miracles are done among you with great perseverance. Now that word uh, in our translation doesn't quite get to the heart of it. Uh, this word is always in connection with suffering. One of the first things Paul says in this letter, back in chapter 1, as he sympathizes with the Corinthians, he said, you're patiently enduring the same sufferings we are. And that enduring word is the same word here as perseverance. 
Well, Paul says of himself in chapter 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, same word, perseverance, that is, in troubles, hardship, and distress. So the point is, Paul says, look at these super apostles. It's all words and apparently impressive acts of power, but there's no suffering at all. And he says, no, the things that mark an apostle, yes, of course, miracles, but actually suffering. Because the true apostles of Jesus not only work his miracles, but walk in the same path he did towards the cross. And indeed, that is the characteristic uh, of any true ministry uh, today and has been ever since. Not only the words of the Lord Jesus, the promise of the Lord Jesus, but the pattern of the Lord Jesus as well. Suffering before glory for all the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Suffering before glory for those who preach his word as well. My only inferiority, Paul says, verse 13, uh, was that I didn't charge you for my preaching. An irony of ironies, you would have thought, wouldn't you? That's great, the collection plate didn't pass around. Uh, Why on earth were they uh, objecting? Well, because in that culture, if you didn't pay for what you heard, it was probably a bit dodgy. So he says, uh, the only uh, way in which um, you were inferior was that I didn't charge you for my ministry. There's an irony uh, in, uh, of course, what he's saying. It's a little bit like today when we go around carol singing at Christmas time. We knock on doors and we sing a few lines. Um, uh, Always there are people, often older people, who as soon as they open the door and see we're from the church, they begin to start to rush around looking for some coins to give us. And it's every time I try and get uh, uh, to stop them before they disappear off to the purse and say, don't do it. We've not come collecting. We've come rejoicing and inviting. We've come to give you something. Good news. An invitation to find life in Jesus. We don't want your money. We want you. That's the authentic uh, Christian way of doing things. Uh, how shameful uh, that people still of a certain generation associate a visit from the church with the idea that the vicar must want your money. Uh, what an a, a, a indictment that is uh, of a former way of doing things. Uh, the authentic apostolic ministry preaches the word of Jesus, does so with miracles, but also in the pattern, uh, the gracious, self-giving, suffering love of Jesus. Let's move on uh, to the second point. Uh, So much for what is uniquely authentic about an apostle. As he continues, he becomes much more general here. Uh, What is authentic, and not only for his ministry, but for any church, any believer, any minister. He seeks, he says, not what is yours, but you. Uh, There has been in the uh, experience, uh, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, a tough time. There was a painful visit uh, that caused both sides distress. There has been a painful letter. It was hard to write and harder to receive. Things are at a tricky point between Paul and his Corinthian congregation. And the temptation on both sides must have been to turn and walk away. That's our temptation, isn't it? When our relationships become difficult, when there's been pain and upset, well, the instinct we have is to preserve ourselves and to turn and walk away. But instead, persevering through the pain is what love actually means. And that's what Paul demonstrates here. 
In his famous first uh, letter, he said, Love is patient and kind. Uh, Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's a passage often chosen at weddings, uh, and gloriously so, when everybody's thinking, isn't it wonderful? We love each other, and then the wrongs start to build up, and love is seen or not for how Christian it really is. Now, if there's nothing to forgive, well, then there probably isn't real love, because love is forgiveness, at least between sinners and as we receive it as sinners from a merciful God. That's what Paul models here. We'd love it, wouldn't we, if there were uh, no need to be discerning, only perfect churches, a simple message. Uh, It is a simple message, but without any who would gain, say it. If we could have the kind of relationship with each other in this church where we didn't need to say sorry and put things right. The gospel is good news for the real world for real hearts, for real sinners like me and you. And Paul knows that, and Paul models it. No, he says, I love you with a patience and a kindness, and yes, a no-keeping of wrongs. Again, the bigger picture behind this paragraph, verses 14 uh, through to 18, uh, is uh, that Paul really just can't get it right in some people's eyes. Uh, Some are suspicious that he didn't want paying, as I've already said, because a speaker who doesn't want paying is probably not proper, uh, not the real deal. But there were other people who were equally suspicious that he said that, but then helped himself to the collection that he'd been organizing to go to the impoverished believers in Jerusalem who were suffering from a famine about this time. So the poor man can't win. So often that is the case. Uh, And yet he says, what I want is not your possessions, but you. Uh, as uh, uh, we have it in the CRISPR authorized version, I seek not yours, but you. That is Christian love, uh, where we simply desire to be with one another, to entwine our lives together, uh, to find again and again the Lord's mercy and forgiveness from him and extend it out to each other as well. And not only is this a matter of forgiveness, but generosity. What he does have because he worked hard with his hands and had a salary, what he does have, he cheerfully spends on them. More, he even spends himself. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. The older translation again has it here. Now he says, you Corinthians, you don't trust me. You don't really love me. Uh, you're uh, wondering whether I'm genuine uh, because of the seeds of doubt that have been sown by these false apostles. But he says, you need to know that I love you and I will give myself and I will give everything I have because I love you and I will forgive you and be kind to you and keep no record of your wrongs. That's the character of real Christian love that Paul demonstrates here. He'd rather not talk about it, but they need to hear it and they need to know that it's real If I love you more, he says, halfway through verse 15, uh, will you love me less? He he longs that they would respond to his love for them with love for him. But look at verse 16, be that as it may. In other words, whether you love me back or not, I'm going to love you anyway, because that is grace. So often in our natural selves, we think of uh, love uh, as a two-way street. You love me and I'll love you. And if you let me down, well, I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to hit you with that accusation uh, in the future when I can use it to my advantage. 
Christian love is fueled by grace. That is, the love of God enables us to love others even when they reject or refuse or resist or don't want anything to do with us. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I've not been a burden to you. And then he explains about this business of the trickery that uh, uh, they think that somehow he's organized a collection for the uh, Jerusalem believers and then taken it uh, for himself. He says, no, look, I've surrounded myself with trustworthy people. They wouldn't do that to you. Titus and the other brother, we're not here to exploit you. We're here to love you and care for you. Christian love uh, is fueled by grace and it lays down its own life. Well, if love lays down, so truth builds up as we come to our final uh, point here. The third uh, point, the last authenticating mark, is that of truth. We speak before God in Christ. Paul here is not defending himself as such. In a sense, he doesn't care for his own reputation, but he cares, as the one who brings them the word of God, that they know he is trustworthy. For if they don't trust him then they won't hear the authentic voice of Jesus and they'll miss out on the grace and power that alone can save them. And so he says quite solemnly uh, here, we're not defending ourselves to you, except insofar as it's necessary for you to hear the truth. And as we've been doing so, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. That is, I take God as my witness. The words I'm speaking to you, he says, are the authentic words of one who is in Christ, who knows Christ, who is Christ's faithful servant. And the reason that I speak to you like this, he says, is for your strengthening. That's the purpose of truth. That's the purpose of the word of truth, that we might be strengthened in our faith and our life for the Lord Jesus. Now, again, what Paul goes on to say is hard for them to hear. It's hard for them to hear uh, because it's countercultural and it's counterintuitive and it's contrary to what has been happening in that congregation and what's been told to them by these false apostles. He fears that when he comes, verse 20, that they will be resisting the truth of God's word and therefore resisting repentance. And as they resist repentance, so they won't reject him as well. Well, Paul says, uh, be that as it may. Uh, He must speak the truth, the truth of God for the strengthening. Uh, That is the truth of God that calls us to turn from our sins, the truth of God that calls us to repentance and to faith. And he he goes through a list. We won't go through them in detail. Uh, First of social sins and then of sexual sins. And in both of those lists, the instinct of the sinful heart and the uh, words of the or the uh, culture around Uh, that leads us to put self first, my power, my way, my choices, leads to the outworking of these sins. You see, when uh, I want to do things my way, and you want to do things your way, we will disagree, and therefore we will quarrel about it. Or when you have something I want, or I have something that you want, because my agenda is central, then we will be jealous of each other. And when it's me and my way that's important, and you think it's you and your way that's important, we'll get angry with each other because we won't agree, because we'll all be trying to serve our own interests. Now, you see, it must be Christ 
his grace and power that is at the center of our common life. Otherwise, we're at the center. And then there is quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Why do those things occur in churches? Because we have not got our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and his grace and power alone. Paul says, I'm afraid when I come again, my God will humble me before you because you won't have repented in these things. And this false message you're hearing that encourages you to look within yourself for the answers, well, the fruit of that will be these destructive, antisocial behaviors. And then there is sexual sin. In a nutshell, uh, the Bible is clear from beginning to end without ambiguity uh, that all sec- that God's design for sexual activity is in the exclusive heterosexual marriage of one man and one woman. There's no doubt about that, that the Bible is clear, or that God's calling to us is to be chased outside of marriage and faithful within it. Our culture is deeply unwilling to hear that. And there are many in the churches uh, who say this is so old-fashioned and out of date, and Paul would say, and I will say, so what? When this culture is a page in the history books, God's word will stand. And when we come to the judgment day, it won't be, did you agree with the culture around you? It will be, did you listen to my word? And did you repent of your sins and find forgiveness in me? Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that includes his calling for us to repent of both social and sexual sins. And no one in the churches would deny that the social sins are really bad. We recognize them in ourselves. We know we need to repent of gossip and disorder and arrogance and so on. So why is it that the Church of England is embarked on a multi-year massive consultation on whether we should reconsider uh, what constitutes sexual sin under the banner of the project Living in Love and Faith. You see, from an apostolic perspective, from Jesus' perspective, that's as incongruous as the Church of England launching a massive project over several years to decide if we should reassign quarreling, jealousy, gossip, and arrogance as virtues rather than vices. It's just that our culture isn't pushing for that. And so, of course, we're not asking that question. So why are we not surprised that it does so over sexual morality? I'll remember those false apostles' appeal. What they said chimed in with the secular pagan culture of the day. And it took a still small voice of a weak apostle to bring them back to what Jesus really said. Friends, we need the love and truth of Jesus. Without both, we're sunk. Without his love, there is no forgiveness. Without his truth, there is no repentance. And the Lord calls us to stand on his word that will never change, to become a congregation of ministers in which we are willing to love each other even when that is not reciprocated because we are grace-fueled people. And even when we are the only one in our social circle, our workplace, or our school who stands on the word of God when it comes to these social and sexual sins, so be it. For this is Jesus' command to us, and by his grace and power we will walk in it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we wish things were simpler.
I wish there was an easy way to know that we've heard your voice. There weren't dissonant voices, competing voices. So many of them plausible and attractive. Please would you open our ears to your voice, spoken by your apostles, recorded for us in the scriptures, written on our hearts by your Holy Spirit, so that we might rest entirely on your grace and your power. We might trust in your cross alone as our forgiveness, and we might follow you in the path of costly love and true discipleship. We ask it in your name. Amen.